0: Welcome back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast.
1: Welcome back to the PFC podcast. This is Dennis and today I am with Kevin. How are you doing today, Kevin? Uh, doing great. How are you, Dennis? I'm doing very good and uh what i'd really like to talk to you about is uh, kind of a deep dive on ketamine and uh what it is and what it's used for and what does it do and i think a, a lot of guys they know the basics but they haven't really dug into it
0: yeah so um ketamine it's an nmda receptor antagonist and uh when we talk about you know pharmacodynamics you know what is the the drug due to the body, you know, ketamine has, and it's still, um, the science isn't completely settled on a lot of the things that ketamine does due to the body, but we all know that it it can cause some profound analgesia in certain dosing. And then in um, higher doses, it can, you know, cause a a disassociative type of anesthetic. Um, And just one of the, I know this is one of the questions you originally asked, so I think we could just when we, when we talk about a disassociative anesthetic and how they've kind of termed this is there's EEG evidence, and what they've done is they can see that there's disassociation between the, the thalmocortical and limbic systems. So those two systems just become disassociated, and you become into kind of this uh, kind of catatonic state. So your, your eyes remain open, you have that nystag- the nystagmus. There might even be um, varying movements of you know, P, you know, but nothing that makes sense to what's going on. So like if you're just doing a purely ketamine anesthetic, you know, patients might move, but it's not purposeful or they're not trying to um, get away from the surgical stimulus if that kind of makes any sense. So, <laughs> As far as the, the the dynamic port portion of it, that's about the best thing I could find when we talk about um, how ketamine creates this disassociation. So what I usually tell people and so people are like, Hey, how does this work? I'm just like it, Essentially, just a very, very basic way to think about it. It just disconnects the top half of your brain from the bottom half of your brain and essentially from the rest of your body. So there's still thoughts being um, and memories potentially being formed in the upper portion of your brain. And that's where I think people can remember their, their kind of the hallucinations that they've had, or that feeling of they're, they're floating. Um, It's because they're just not receiving that information from the rest of their body that they're actually on the ground. Like they have no sense of what gravity is. So that's kind of the, the, the disassociated portion of, of ketamine. So also, um, Kind of the pharmacodynamics that we should talk about because uh, our European or our, um, some of our uh, colleagues in the European nations, they have what's, what's purely an S-ketamine. And I think it's been approved now for, we've got some uh, intranasal S-ketamine approved for depression. So the ketamine that we are all carrying is a racemic mixture And it's the S-ketamine and the um, R-ketamine. And it's the S-ketamine that produces all the things that we we want. And then it's typically the way I think about it. It's the R-ketamine that produces all the stuff that we don't want. So S-ketamine is a more intense analgesic. It has a more rapid metabolism, therefore it's a recover, it recovers quicker, it's less salivation, and also some lower emergence, uh, lower um, emergence reactions than the R-ketamine. So it'd be really nice if we could get our hands on S ketamine. A lot of our potential issues that we have with ketamine, um, we would we would not have to deal with. But unfortunately, it's what we got. So I don't know if the the science is settled on this either because I've in some of the, you know, the anesthetic um, textbooks that I read or the the journals that I read versus some of the pharmacology, purely pharmacology textbooks or journals is like, how does um, ketamine create that uh, the sympathetic response? And what most of the things I found is that it, you once the, norepinephrine which is the the major uh neurotransmitter for the sympathetic nervous system also epinephrine once we get a um a big sympathetic surge that it somehow creates a, a scenario where it does not get up reuptake back into those neurons so typically norepinephrine will be um uh has just to the mechanism of action, it just gets taken up back into the the presynaptic neurons where ketamine um, stops that. So it just creates more of a sympathetic surge because you have more catecholamines in those attaching to the postganglionic sympathetic nerve endings. It's almost, and this is what one of the anesthetic textbooks said: it's almost like a cocaine-like effect because cocaine—that's what it does. It prevents the reuptake of norepinephrine. So. Um, that's kind of one of the other things that this drug does to the body. Mm-hmm. So, if we're sticking with um, the kind of the pharmacody- the pharmacodynamics, the analgesic portion of this, one of the 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 bigger analgesic portions of this, it takes place in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord, and in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord, glutamate receptors will fire and they can create a, um, over time chronic pain. And, and then, um, that's where ketamine can come in and help decrease, um, potentially decrease, um, like, a um, chronic pain that can happen down the road. So it also, um, when I, my last peek at reading about ketamine, it also works at the, the mu receptors for opioids it works at muscarinic receptors it, it, it kind of it's it's the dynamics of this are it's it's still emerging as far as where it all works but um, it seems to be working just about everywhere in the body but obviously the the biggest effects that we see are the nmda receptors is that yeah. kind of a, a good way to look at this
1: Yep, I understood absolutely everything that you said. Um, All right. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> well, well, and
0: then, so it, it's, you know, I, I it's hard because I, I read my anesthetic textbooks and I find half of the time I have to go look up stuff that like, you know, I read a paragraph and I have to read it five times just to kind of get an idea of, of, of what they're trying to say. And then I have to go you know, half of the time I have to get into the textbook and then start looking up stuff that they're saying within the paragraph and it can take an hour to get through a page.
1: Oh yeah. So, um, a hundred percent understand that. Um, (laughs) so like the, the effects, the sympathetic surge, I think that makes perfect sense. You know, if it's, you know, blocking the the reuptake of a neurotransmitter, then that neurotransmitter is just going to continue to build up. And then you're going to have this, you know, uh, Uh, hyper uh, response to it that make I think that makes a lot of sense yeah. And uh, you know, it, it makes,
0: that's what I've always, you know, kind of thought, but then when you read, there's other texts that'll be like, Nope, we don't know how this, how it does it. But then you read some other texts and they're like, well, this is how it does it. So I'm not, exa- I'm not a hundred percent sure if the textbooks that I've been reading are right. Like they might come out and say, no, that's not exactly how it does. It, it creates that um, sympathetic response. Um, but at least for now, in my mind, when I read what the books that I look at, that's, that's how it's going to work. Yeah.
1: No, I mean, and I've definitely, I've seen it as far as, you know, that you get that, that, that catecholamine surge, you know, the heart, heart rate climbs up, my uh, blood pressure maybe comes up a, a little bit. Um, but I mean, that makes sense to, from what I've witnessed things happening. <laughs>
0: Yes. So, and we can touch on the, um, the, the catecholamine, um, depletion type thing a little bit later, but if we want to go into the pharmacokinetics, sure. um, so I, there's something that we learn about with, with drugs, right. And one of those things is called the, the PK. And this is where at, um, a certain pH, fifty percent of the the, um, the drug will be in one form, and fifty percent of the drug will be in the other form, and it allows to um, be go through membranes. So one of those membranes, the, the most important one being the the blood-brain barrier. So when we when we look at ketamine, the pK of ketamine is seven point five. Um, and that's at a, a physiologic pH. So that tells us that this drug is going to be highly, highly. Um, it'll it'll cross membranes fairly quickly. So it's a it's a highly lipophilic drug. So highly lipophilic drugs or highly um, lipid soluble drugs will cross um, the blood-brain barrier very, very, very quickly. So you have a drug that has a PK of 7.5 at physiologic pH, and then it's highly lipophilic, and that all in itself creates the scenario where the onset is super fast. And I'm sure you've seen it where you give it IV, it's within 30 to 60 seconds it's working. And then you give it IM for somebody who's got... Um, uh, some decent uh, perfusion to whatever muscle that you injected that into where I mean it's within a minute or two maybe three to four minutes I've read some text but when I've used it I am I mean you can see the effects pretty quick mm-hmm. and and that's why so usually if you inject it IV the, the peak plasma concentrations occur within 60 seconds And typically after IM injection, it's around four to five minutes. So when you get that peak um, plasma concentration, it's just concentration gradients. Like you have a super high concentration of this drug in the plasma or in the blood and it then just goes down its concentration gradient. So the blood is going, so wherever the most highly perfused um, portions of the body are, that's where that drug is going to go because it's going to go there first. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So the the brain being one of them, so it essentially just goes straight to the brain and um, goes down its concentration gradient. So there's a lot of it in the blood, there's none of it in the brain. So it just all goes into the, into the brain. Um, but once it leaves the blood, then the concentration gradient is the other way, right? So it's high in the brain, low in the blood. So then it just goes back. So into the blood and it gets rapidly distributed to other tissues. So that's how ketamine stops working. It doesn't, it's not metabolism. It's not the metabolism through the liver that makes the, um, it stopped working. It just simply gets distributed to other tissues very quickly, and it leaves the brain. So you'll typically, what I've seen is that even if I've like a fifty milligram IV bolus of ketamine, maybe ten minutes. Like it's it's short acting, and I don't think people appreciate how short acting ketamine is. Okay. Um, and that's one of the things that I've learned over the kind of the years of using it is. Um, understanding that, like you have to, if you're not going to do a ketamine infusion, um, you're, like you have to redose it fairly often to see the to see the effects.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How does that affect maybe? So that would be, I think, more of an IV dose. Would be like that 10 minute duration. Um, what about uh, like IM? <sighs> Um, I
0: would, I think that all has to do with like how quickly, um, or how, like how perfused that muscle is. Mm -hmm. If, if once again, this is a highly soluble drug, so it's going to, it's going to get into the bloodstream very quickly from the muscle. Um, and once it's in the bloodstream, it's in the bloodstream and then it's going to make it to the site of action, which is the spinal cord in the, in the brain or super spinal. And very quickly come out of there back into the bloodstream and then redistribute to other tissues. And it's going to, the effects are going to stop. Yeah. Um, now have I seen like, you know, super cold, um, and you get a patient that's been given a, you know, a bigger dose of IM ketamine and it does it last longer? Yeah, it does. And I think that just has to do with there's less perfusion to those tissues and it just, it's almost like a depot effect um, where it's just uh, the slower, um, the, the, the perfusion of those tissues is, is not as robust as somebody who's got normal physiology. So therefore it just, it takes longer to get into the bloodstream so that it works longer.
1: Yeah, no, I I think that actually does make sense because you're thinking about, you know, somebody who's very cold or somebody who's uh, hypotensive, they, Mm. their tank is essentially smaller than a normal person's. So that drug, um, as it leaves, you know, it leaves the brain or leaves the tissue to get back into the basket or it has less room to actually distribute. So... It's going to take longer for that drug to its effects to wear off because that movement from the brain to the tissue is going to be slower.
0: Yeah, and and that's that's something to to think about, too. Like if you have typically let's just call it a five liter tank of blood and um, you bleed out. You know, a liter or two, now your tank is smaller. And when that happens, you tend to vasoconstrict and, you know, protect, you know, the body is like, what do I need to stay alive? Well, I need the brain. Mm-hmm. So every, so blood's essentially cut off to everything else. So now you're pushing, you know, the same amount of drug into a much smaller, um, you know, liter three liters instead of five liters, and then it's in a smaller compartment as well. So, yeah, I I agree with that. And I've thought about that, too. Hence, you should give smaller doses to patients that are hypovolemic.
1: Right. Um, So that would be kind of a perfect uh, segue into my next question is, you know, I think just about everybody I've met carries ketamine, um, Mm -hmm. but not everybody I've met has real practical experience using this relatively frequently um you know you see a lot of different patients from you know people in like a walk-in clinic where they're getting some kind of you know quick day surgery type thing you know all the way to the very sick the the worst um how do you approach you know this looking at this patient his vital signs his you know physiology as it is now and dose uh ketamine
0: yeah. I, I, I think, um, in general, like one of my instructors, when I was in anesthesia school, you know, he, t- he told me, he's like everything that we give, whether it's an anesthetic gas, it's ketamine, it's, it's something that makes the blood pressure go up. Something that makes the blood pressure go down for the majority of the, of the medicines that we give, it's all poison mm-hmm. and you have to give the correct dose of poison in order to get the effect that you want. And everybody needs a different amount of poison to get the effect that you want. So if you treat your drugs like poison and you look at your patient and you go, if I give them this much poison, it's probably going to kill them. If I give them this much poison, it's not going to do what I want it to do. I have to give them the right amount of poison. So when we look at patients, we have to take into effect what's the surgery... That um, that is going to happen or is happening? Or what is the injury that pattern that I'm trying to um, treat? And then you have to kind of look at all of the comorbidities of whatever patient you're dealing with. Like, I think we always think that we're going to be taking care of some, uh, you know, 20 to 35 year old super athlete. Um, We might not be, we might be taking care of a pediatric patient. We might be taking a, Care of a pregnant lady, we might be taking care of somebody who's elderly who smoked 60 packs a year or 60 packs a day or whatever. So don't always get into the mindset that you're only going to be taking care of some young, healthy patient that just doesn't have enough blood. Um, so you have to take into effect it, it take into account a lot of different factors when you're given a, a drug. You can't just, I think. And that's also one of the hardest things when I was in nurse anesthesia school is, you know, the book answer it's, you know, one to two megs per Kig and then it's four to five makes per Kig. I am. And it, and then, but you have a patient who's got, you know, a blood pressure that you might not be, they might not have radial pulses and their heart rate's 140. Are you going to give that same dose? Well, that one to two mgs per keg might be the lethal dose of poison that you're giving that patient because they don't have any, they're in much different type of physiology than what you would give somebody who's um, just going to sleep to get their gallbladder out. So that person can handle one to two megs per keg of ketamine because that's not the lethal dose for them, but it might be the lethal dose for a trauma patient. And I, and I, I always try to tell patients or tell people that I work with, uh, yes, every drug has a, it has a book answer, but then there's the patient answer and you have to see the patient in front of you and get an idea of like, all right, I should probably go a lot smaller and see what happens versus go big and then deal with those consequences.
1: So when you say a lot smaller, do you cut? So like the book, say you, the book answer, you know, is kind of the book answer. Um, you know, somebody who's really sick, they, you know, that patient with no radials and, you know, they're just sick. How much would you cut that book answer dose? So let's
0: just take a hundred kilo person and we're just purely using ketamine. Mm-hmm. Um if we're just purely using ketamine and you have a hundred kilo person. So if we're going to, and this hundred kilo person is coming in to get their gallbladder out and you're going to just do an induction dose of ketamine and you're going to do, let's say a hundred milligrams or 200 milligrams. I would most likely cut that dose probably almost by 75%. If I, if I thought that um, this person was on the verge of losing vital signs um, and, uh, and I felt that they were on the verge of being catecholamine depleted, then I would use a much, much smaller dose, probably in the, like 30 milligrams to maybe 50, if at all. Um, and just to not get into a scenario and now we're in PEA <laughs> You know the heart's beating, but there's no blood because we just vasodilated them out, or um, we we knocked out their sympathetic tone, which is what was keeping them alive. Right. Because the statement, ketamine, is a myocardial depressant. That is what ketamine is. It creates a sympathetic surge, which is why you see an increase in heart rate and you see an increase in blood pressure secondary to what we spoke about earlier which is it prevents the reuptake of catecholamines mm-hmm. if there's no catecholamines to reuptake then it is 100% a myocardial depressant and that's where it becomes poison for a trauma patient and you will give them a lethal dose of ketamine because if you don't have if you don't have a surgeon ready to cut open the chest and cross clamp the aorta and you give that drug and now you've knocked out um, their sympathetics and they go into pea you're done there's nothing you can do you 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 have to put blood back in them um, but you're not going to be able to put the blood in fast enough Mm -hmm. the surgeon needs to get in there cross clamp the aorta and essentially cut off the lower half of the tank from the upper half. So you can fill the upper half of blood while they're trying to figure out where the hole is and um, uh, to stop the bleeding. But if, if you're by yourself and you do that, like CPR does not work in a patient that does not have any blood.
1: Right. Right. Um, before I go too far off, um, you know, it's when you're talking about cutting dosing. So an induction dose, you know, i when I normally talk about it, I'm like eh, at least cut it in half um but uh you're saying even more is probably smarter
0: well I, I half is a good place to start you know if and but if you're looking at your patient, I guess the 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 question would be is is can, can you stop doing what you're doing and just give them blood to try to tank them back up before you give them the ketamine? Yeah. Um, so I'm giving ketamine in a scenario that there's literally a surgeon six inches away from me on my left-hand side. Right. And I, and I have the answer to, we've just gone into PEA on induction. The answer is I have a surgeon that can get into their chest and cross clamp the aorta while I'm dumping blood into them where I think unless you have a surgeon with you, no one really has a good answer for that. Right. And unless you're like, and, and you know, some of our, you know, our emergency medicine physicians are trained to do thoracotomies. Um, I would, uh, I would have to assume our PA um, emergency medicine trained um, colleagues are, are trained to do this. But then the question is, is once you cross clamp that, that aorta, now what's your plan? Like right. you've got less, then you know 30 minutes to get to a surgeon because you have to un- you have to get them off of that cross clamp so the best thing to do is knock out not put them into PEA by giving them too much ketamine um so start small if you have an IV it's easier uh you know than I am so if you have an IO you can start smaller and see what happens versus given like a a big schwack am, and then you're like okay you just bought that like there's nothing you can do about it Yep,
1: yeah. nope makes a lot of sense um i don't really know why you would i guess but maybe you're worried that this person could still feel pain and you know you need to do some painful things like a chest tube or a crank <laughs> maybe um so you want to give them an analgesic dose would you kind of um would you reduce it roughly the same Half to one third. No, I, I, um,
0: I would imagine that if you had somebody that you were had some tension physiology and you were wanting to put a chest tube in, um, you know, ten milligrams to twenty milligrams of ketamine. Um, I would imagine it's going to be a, it's going to be fine. And that analgesic dose, but you're, you, once you give it, I mean, you've got minutes, not a long time to get your procedure done. They're still going to grow. They're still going to, they they most likely will have a reaction to you making that incision and getting into the pleural cavity. Um, but it's not as uh, a robust, um, uh responses if no ketamine was given. I mean I've given, you know, 10 milligrams of ketamine to people with gunshot wounds, and they um are they feel much better after that. And I'm just giving small doses IV just because I still want to continue to talk to them and assess them.
1: Yeah. No. Very very good. And you can always, if 10 isn't enough, you can always add a little bit more if you need to. Yes. Absolutely. Perfect so kind of on that note with uh analgesia you know i, I kind of hear a lot of discussion about you know when it comes to pain control to analgesia and people talking about hey you know ketamine isn't actually an analgesic; it's a disassociative um i guess i don't understand really understand what that means because from what i understood ketamine was a very good analgesic
0: Yes, uh, I mean, ketamine. When you go back to the NMDA receptor and glutamate, and how glutamate is the glutamate receptor is part of the, the pain um, transmission pathways. Um, I would imagine. Yeah, I, 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 it's not just it's it's dose dependent. Right. Um, so the lower doses, you get the analgesic effects without the disassociative effects. And somewhere in the middle of that is where what we you know what we all know to call the party dose. It's where you get some of the analgesic effects and you get some of the disassociative effects which create your your party your party area where you can get some hallucinations and, and, and feel good. And then you get above the, the party dose, which is usually up into the 0.7 to 0.8 megs per keg area. And then you then it's just it's it's a dose disassociative with the analgesic properties. Okay. That's okay. my under. That's my understanding, um, and that's just from what I've read in our in, in my anesthetic textbooks. That's what I've learned. But I think it's all you have to go back to the receptor. Where do those receptors live, and what do those receptors do? And um, if it's part of the pain pathway, then I don't see how ketamine could not be an analgesic.
1: Right, and, and that makes sense. You know, from what you mentioned earlier about it hitting it, the NMDA is uh, the dominant receptor it's targeting, but it is also hitting the mu receptors and, you know, other receptors in the spinal column. So, you know, you are actually taking care of pain. You're not just basking it with some kind of hallucination.
0: Yeah. And I guess I can give an example. I was taking care of um, somebody who had, um, a gunshot wound, otherwise stable, you know, wasn't, um, didn't hit any, anything major, but just the area that that gunshot wound was an extremely painful, um, area. And I was in a controlled environment. I wasn't out in the field just, I was, you know, I was in a, in a fixed facility and I was working in fentanyl just to try to take care of this person's pain. And I'm, you know, how I was, you know, just here's 50 mil or 50 mics. Here's another 50 mics. And I'm just talking to him, just watching his respiratory rate and just, you know, asking him, you know, where are you from and just having a conversation with him as I'm working in this, in this fentanyl. And fentanyl works very quickly, you know, within, you know, 60 to 60 seconds to three minutes, you start seeing some pretty profound effects. And I had gotten up to probably a dose that, you know, most people were, would be uncomfortable with, but I'm just used to these big doses of fentanyl, but I was at 500 mics of fentanyl. Mm -hmm. And over the course of maybe six to seven minutes and it did not touch him. And I was just talking to him and I'm like, did you get any relief from uh, the medication I'm giving you? And, And I'm not telling him how much I'm giving him. And he's like, and he's just like, no, man, it's, it's 10 out of 10. And he's, he's not looking like I'd given him anything. So then I'm like looking at my vial of fentanyl. I'm looking at the expiration date. I'm like, Nope, that's it. I'm looking at the IV. I'm like, no, that that's, that's definitely working. Um, and I, I, you know, maybe it took the edge off a little bit, but not, not anywhere where I, where he wasn't writhing. So Mm -hmm. I gave him 10 milligrams of ketamine and the pain was gone. Nice. And he just said, I don't know what you just gave me, but I feel amazing. And I was like, "Boom, sounds good. And just, you know, once that pain came back, which was about 10 minutes, 20 minutes later, just because that's how quickly it wears off, gave him another 10 milligrams and that, and I stopped giving him opioids because they just did not touch him. Um, and ketamine, um, worked really well and he was not disassociated. He was talking to me. He definitely, he definitely was, he he could tell that I had given him something other than opioids, but he was not, um, he, he could carry on a conversation with me.
1: Yeah. Um, so Speaking of like kind of assessing your patient and wondering, you know, where are they at? Um, when you talk, when you're looking at your patient and, and trying to assess, you know, how well you're doing, you know, what kind of like feedback are you getting from the patient at an analgesic dose versus you're starting to head into that party zone? Well,
0: I so it's that's hard, right? And there's a lot of um, talk and kind of right now about versed mydazilam mm-hmm. kind of being this evil drug, and it can cause all sorts <laughs> of bad stuff and trauma patients. Um, when I start getting into bigger doses of, of ketamine, um, the party dose like point three to whatever point six, I think is some of what the books say. I start giving. Versed, mm-hmm. um, and once you give that versed, and you're into that party dose of ketamine, um, you really can't talk to your your patient. I mean, they they they. It's just a, it's just a different um, type of sedation. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm not talking big doses of versed. You know, I, I like a milligram. 2 milligrams okay. small small doses of versed I'm not I don't go big on versed most guys don't need a lot um you know 1 to 2 milligrams along with you know 30 40 50 milligrams of ketamine is typically fine um that it's it's hard you see start seeing some nystagmus um you know they've got the they just they have that catatonic look um that Party dose state. If you don't give Versed, I think you can start seeing somebody who becomes disinhibited, who's acting more. um, Just it almost they're almost like. I, like a, somebody who's intoxicated, uh-huh. it's 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 like you go from somebody who's got good pain control to somebody who's you're dealing with like that intoxicated patient who just I mean you just can't talk to somebody who's drunk, right. and they're just doing whatever they're doing, and it might take you know a couple of people to hold them down, and then it goes into the dissociative and anesthetic, like you can do surgery on them, uh-huh. but I find that if you give versed, you typically don't get into that. Um, party dose reaction, even though you're in the party dose. That's just what I've seen. That's just what I've seen.
1: Okay. So they're just kind of talking nonsense and kind of moving around a little bit, but they're not really interacting with you.
0: No, not that I've seen. I mean, I haven't been too many, I've not been around anybody really. That's just like, Hey man, I'm going to party with ketamine. It's just me. It's just me giving them the wrong dose. Of ketamine and going, okay, I'm in the party zone right now. Um, This is not good. So, and and I've seen people wake up from, you know, I've given probably too much ketamine during a surgery. Not that they didn't need that ketamine. I just know that they were not narcotic naive. They were on, had been on narcotics for a while for pain. And I'm trying to use a multimodal approach. So I give ketamine and they wake up and they're hallucinating. Mm -hmm. Some people, their hallucinations are, are fine. Like, you know, they, Hey, what do you see? I see this, that, and the other, or they're carrying on a conversation with somebody that's not there. Um, but they're no harm to themselves and they're no harm to anybody around them. And they're like, okay, well, that's fine. That's going to wear off versus somebody who thinks they're back in combat and they're like, you know, where is so and so? Where is so and so? That's the guy you got to give that versed to um, just to get them out of that uh, hallucinations.
1: Right. And so I imagine just with the, the yeah, as the drug um, kind of gets worn off, I mean, how long would that? say for some reason you didn't have or said, how long would you expect that kind of hallucination state to, because you're an emergence reaction now.
0: Yeah. I, I've seen it last upwards of about an hour. Ooh, ooh, um, yeah. I've seen, I've seen it. Uh, the one person that I remember vividly who was having his, his trip so to speak or his hallucination was uh not bad at all he was just carrying on conversations about motorcycles and um we just we didn't give him a bunch of verse. Said we were just kind of letting that ketamine wear off and it i think it took words it took almost an hour
1: yeah now do you think it lasts because that's way different than you know, the normal kind of metabolism or distribution, whatever it is, of ketamine, do you think because it's so uh, lipophilic, it just kind of got absorbed in the fat and it took so long to?
0: Yes, it could have. Also, too, um, you know, it, it is metabolized by the liver, um and that you know you've got the it's through the cytochrome P450 enzyme system, which if you want to nerd out on that, we can, but you can have um the certain medications that will cause upregulation of that enzyme, and then certain things will call them to cause down regulation. Mm-hmm. So the the metabolite of norketamine or excuse me of ketamine is norketamine and it's about a third as potent, I believe, is ketamine, and then that's got to go through um, another form of, of uh, metabolism where it gets conjugated, um, it gets hydroxylated, and then conjugated to form water, and then it becomes inactive, and then it gets excreted by the kidneys. So if that whole system um, of your your metabolism, the, the liver type metabolism is not working correctly. And then, um, your kidneys are not working correctly. Then you could see prolonged effects. Now with the gentleman that I'm thinking of, I, he was on a, a bunch of different medications. So I don't know if any of them down-regulated the ketamine or that, that the, um, the, the P450 mm-hmm. enzyme system or, all right, I'm not sure. It just seemed to, and he was, he was, he's a big, he's a big dude. So it could have been that all the, um, the re- the ketamine getting into his other f- tissues, you just created a ketamine sponge, so to speak. And it just slowly comes out of the, of those tissues and then redistributes to the brain. And now we're in like the party zone as he's coming down.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: And, and that was somebody that I did not use ver, a lot of Versed on. Right. So um, I had given this person Versed up front, but by the time the surgery is over, that Versed is gone. It's metabolized. But that ketamine, I continued to give him ketamine throughout the surgery because he needed it. And now and now he's waking up with ketamine on board without any type of um, long-acting uh, amnestic on board like mm-hmm. Like verse said, okay, okay. So, so that's the scenario where you can get into. In in my what I've seen in the in the recovery room is is people having issues waking up with ketamine.
1: Nice. Okay. Uh, perfect. Um, so another thing that you know I see a lot of medics talking about or asking me about that, I, to be honest, I I don't actually know, is you know the whole the catecholamine depletion uh, thing. And so we kind of talked about, you know, ketamine being a uh, cardiovascular depressant. Um, mm-hmm. Now, like, how how bad off does this person have to be where they're no longer making, you know, epinephrine, norepinephrine?
0: Well, I, I guess the scenario that I would always imagine is if you have a service member who's out in a, you know, in a gunfight, you know, their sympathetic nervous system is already fired um, you know, what have they been doing for the past couple of weeks? Are they getting sleep or they you know, it's just like, so when you, are they already on the verge of, um, you know, just, you know, being chronically stimulated with the sympathetic nervous system and now they're out running around, um, with, you know, whatever, how much kit they have on and now they're in a gunfight and now they get injured and now they're bleeding out. Um, at some point, like you're going to run out of catecholamines. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when that is, is my, my guess is it's, it's different for everybody. Um, You know, I've seen um, some patients come in where, you know, they, they are on the verge of losing vital signs. And if you choose the wrong dose of medication, um, you're definitely going to put them into PEA. Um, And, you know if 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 when you're when you're inducing a patient and you know their heart rate is 140 you know they don't have radial pulses um i would say that patient is on the verge of losing vital signs they're in they're they've reached the end of what their sympathetic nervous system can do and um for me like you might give 30 milligrams of ketamine and then you know your neuromuscular blocker you put the tube in you give one breath and then they they you you see your end tidal co2 comes back at at 10 or 20 you know you're in the uh in the um the trachea then they've essentially lost vital signs while you were inducing them or is it the positive pressure ventilation that caused it right so that's always the question I've had. Is it is it the drugs that I'm giving? Cause you can induce you can there's the scenario where you don't give anything. You just give a neuromuscular blocker because that's how far down the pathway of, of shock they are. And then you put the tube in and they lose vital signs. That to me is just changing from negative pressure ventilation to positive pressure ventilation and they've lost vital signs. Like that's how close they were to losing vital signs before you put the, before you change the the pressure physiology in their chest. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I the answer depends. Like if, if they, and it's hard too. like the scenario that I'm typically working in, like I have for the most part, white light, I can see them where the scenario that your guys are working in, it's at night, it's dark, you're under nods. Um, you can't, you don't have that feedback of looking at skin and seeing a guy that's you know, like pasty pale. It's not. It's not like a. a it's, it's it's that dusky color. You know they're not being perfused. That guy is probably kind of colamine depleted, and you do not want to give a big dose of of ketamine. Yeah.
1: No, that makes absolute uh, sense. Um, you know, is there any other? I guess things that. You know, if, if you could go back when you were learning or would have advice for other medics who, who don't really get the able to have the experience using these drugs before they, they punch out. Um, what, I guess, what advice would you give or cautions would you give?
0: Uh, just what I had talked about before, um, and I have to remind myself, uh, is that this, these drugs are poison and the, the dose is very individualized you can always give more. You can't take back what you've given. And, um, when you're using these drugs, maybe for the first time in a real life scenario, um, starts, if you, if you have an IO or you have an IV start smaller than what you think, you can always give more. So if if we go back to the scenario that you talk about, like a chest tube, um, and let's say you give you know ten milligrams of ketamine, and the guy's not tolerating. You put it in a chest tube. Well, that guy that tells me that guy's probably being perfused pretty well. If he's if he's if he's got enough um, uh, res- response to that surgical stimulus that he's moving, then really what you have to create is in, is essentially not complete akinesia or complete not him having him move just give a little bit more, give another 10 milligrams. And if you get into the scenario where now you've put them in the kind of that party zone, have a plan for that. Mm-hmm. Um, if that plan is to give one milligram of versed, then give it. If they get into the party zone and it doesn't seem like it's bothering anybody, then then you're, you're probably okay to just leave them there and let it wear off. Yeah. Um, you know, the other thing I would say, I would say just come into the OR with us, um, but the, the hard part is, is, I mean, we have, we have tons of students. We have, we do have, you guys, we do have, um, uh, medics coming through, but like the scenario that I'm giving ketamine a lot is they're already under general anesthesia. So you might see the, the catecholamine effects, uh, when, you know, I could give ketamine, I can see like, a you know, increase in heart rate, increase in blood pressure, or the scenario a couple months ago I gave a, a dose of ketamine to somebody who um had a blood tr- had an arterial line in and um we were bringing that person to the OR who had a vascular injury but was otherwise doing okay mentating fine I was talking to him and um skin looked good like nothing about him told me that he um was had lost more blood than i had recognized just because it wasn't external bleeding it was all kind of um internal uh bleeding kind of into his groin and he was a a thin person but you didn't see this big hematoma um so i don't know if most of it went kind of retroperitoneal or where it went but i believe i did induce with 100 milligrams of, of ketamine and his systolic was 140 over 80 when i induced Um, and within about 30 seconds, his systolic was in the Mm sixties. So there is somebody that was, um, had a lot less blood volume than I anticipated or had had recognized, um, blood loss. And we used vasopressors to try to get his blood pressure up and really nothing worked. I wound up giving him a, a gram of calcium chloride and that ultimately got his pressure back to where it needed to be. Yep. So that so it's 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 have a plan for when your patient definitely uh, your their catecholamine depleted and you don't recognize it and you're like oh that that just happened so I got to figure that out right right so I, I always tell the um, the medics like you don't have a the bag of tricks that I have in my bag just because a you know you gotta you have to be able you got to be a lot lighter than I am. But you, you do carry calcium chloride and calcium chloride is a very potent vasopressor for about 10 minutes. Yeah. Perfect. So if you if you get into trouble with ketamine and you drop somebody's blood pressure significantly, think about using calcium chloride to get that pressure back up. Okay. Perfect. So um and I think I think that's that's about it. Um can't really think of anything else other than I would I would you know say definitely kind of be a nerd and dig into where that um, NMDA receptor is along the the pain pathways and in the brain and you get a really good idea of how what ketamine does when it, you block those receptors and this and I know you asked me this question about the seizures uh, with ketamine um, to be honest I I looked up, um, using ketamine to break seizures. And I did not see anything that I right off the bat. I think this is more of a, an email I'm going to have to send out to somebody who's got a a much bigger brain than me. Um, who's a PhD in neurobiology and be like, Hey, have you heard of this? Um, now what I, what I, what I have read, um, is that patients that have epilepsy, you can safely use ketamine. And so it doesn't induce seizures, but then some of the places I've read that it, you know, it all depends upon what you're reading. It's like, Nope, it is seizure genic. And you're like, okay, I, it's like, you don't know what to believe. So I guess the scenario, like you're saying, um, like I'm going to use Versed to break a seizure. Like I've got Versed, I'm using it. Um, you know, if, if, if Versed's not breaking a seizure, and I'm assuming you're moving towards some sort of a higher, higher level of care. Um, could you try to use ketamine? I don't know at this point, like, I don't know enough about it to say that I would use it. Right. I, I, I don't, I don't know. I would have to do some more reading before I went ahead and said, yep, I'll give it a shot. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I, I don't know the answer to that question, or at least I don't have a good answer. And I haven't read anywhere that I um, said, like, yes, like, you know, somewhere down the line of your your seizure, um, trying to break a seizure, that ketamine is, is, is somewhere in that algorithm. I just haven't read that yet.
1: Yeah. Now, the only thing I read about it um, had to do with, uh, you know, prolonged status epilepticus. or uh, or some kind of uh, refractory or drug-resistant type of status, epilepticus. Um, But again, those are all kind of small studies, and you see a lot of contradicting information as well.
0: Yeah, and in that scenario, if, if, if somehow I am by myself in the middle of nowhere, you know, I, I am typically not going to be in the same scenario that your guys are going to be in. I'm going to be with other people that have bigger brains than I do, but I would phone a friend. Mm-hmm. is what I would do. I would be like, Hey, this is what I got. This, these are the drugs I have. What should I do? Um, if I was unable to phone a friend and like the only two drugs I had on me were Versed and ketamine and somebody is seizing and seizing and seizing and seizing. And, seizing and now I'm like, okay, I I heard, you know, Dennis and I talked and he said to try ketamine. <laughs> I'd be like, I, yeah, I mean, I, I would, I would have to have a, a, a good reason to kind of say, okay, yeah, I would, I would definitely use it.
1: Right. So, well, the first thing you would be like is who?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's the other thing that I always try to tell people is just like, I am not a reference. Don't be like, yeah, I spoke to that Kevin guy and he was like, yeah, I do this. I always try to like, if I, if I give somebody Tiva mixture or something. I always try to give them a reference so that way when if they do it they have an actual book reference not some some dude named Kevin.
1: Right. No, absolutely. Um I mean anybody I think you trying to do analgesia or sedation in the field I would definitely at least at the minimum, you know, look at the uh, JTS their CPGs and uh you know, you got a lot of you got a lot of brain power built behind that thing. Yep. Cool.
0: yeah the, the cpgs are definitely what i go to when i'm when I, I i try not to operate in the gray area i try to stay within the what the cpgs are, are saying
1: yeah yeah oh cool hey thank you very much kevin
0: all right i'm sure i will listen to this and and want to uh re-answer some of those questions like i did for the airway one so no <laughs> i'll let you know no problem all right cool. well thank thanks you. dennis uh yeah, you have a good
1: one. For today's podcast, be sure to go to our website www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC podcast. Our boy is waiting there for you.